Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 17, The Highs and Lows of Positive Disintegration. Hello, happy listeners. Welcome back to Positive Disintegration, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emma. Good to see you again. You too. And I'm excited about today's discussion. Me too. I've been waiting for this one, I feel like, since we started the podcast. (laughs) We've got a a big topic um, and a very important guest with us. It is an important topic and a wonderful guest. I'm very excited about this. Well, let's get stuck into it without further ado. So with us today, listeners, is Elizabeth Meeker. Elizabeth is a Polish-born psychotherapist and spent her adult life in the United States working in the field of giftedness. Welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. It's great to have you on. Great to be here, Emma and Chris. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks so much for joining us. I met Elizabeth for the first time at the Dabrowski Congress in 2018, and your keynote was wonderful. And um, I was so excited to meet you. I had been following you on Twitter and read your stuff. And I'm just so excited that you're here with us tonight. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's it's quite intimidating to know that somebody is listening to what I what I have to say and um, and that it makes um, an impression. Um, it's quite humbling, I have to admit. Thank you. I feel the same way. It is humbling and it's it's an adjustment to know that people are listening. I mean, I'm a little less nervous now that we've been doing the podcast for several months, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So we start almost every episode by asking our guest how they came across the theory. And so please mm-hmm. tell us how you discovered Dabrowski's theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 15 and uh, I lived in Poland at that time. I have an older brother. He's six years older uh, than I am. And um, he was at that time, so I was 15. I was still, let me think. I think I was at the end of my elementary school. And my brother went to um, the university at that time. And he subscribed to this a magazine for university students. It, it was called ITD, which means um, the translation, English translation would be, and, and so on. And in that magazine, Dombrowski had a column. It was an advice column for students. And if I am not mistaken, and I was trying to research it today again, he also had, he also written articles there for students. But the advice column is what, Um, caught my attention at first. And when I started to read that, um, you know, I was smitten because this man was talking about things that nobody else was talking about um, as far as I knew in Poland at that time. So he was talking about the value of suffering, about so-called psychological, um, psychopathological symptoms as Uh, manifestations of accelerated personality growth. Uh, He was um, discussing existential topics. He was talking about writers and painters and creative individuals and how their growth is 
often punctured by depression, anxiety, inner conflicts, even psychosis. And that was such a revelation to me. I didn't fully understand why then. Um, that then and there I made the decision that I wanted to do what he did. I wanted to become a psychologist and work with the people he worked with. I even uh, wanted to meet him, but at 15, I had no idea how to go about that at all. So that did not happen. And um, it was 1979, I think, and he died two years later, if I'm not mistaken, right? 1981 or 1980. So it was not meant to be. But um, so I went to study psychology. I specialized in clinical psychology and I graduated with my master's um, in clinical psychology in 1987. And three weeks later, I, I immigrated to the US through a series of, well, probably unusual events. You know, I ended up working with the gifted and working with this theory which was quite, uh, quite unthinkable to me when I moved to the US. I was dimly aware of Dombrowski's activity in the United States and Canada at that time. Although when I was reading his works, um, and by the way, at that when, you know, at, from the age of 15, I read everything that was available by Dombrowski. And uh, I also read um, the authors he was talking about in his books. So it was a uh, period of accelerated growth for me at that time. Accelerated intellectual, but emotional, of course, growth as well. So um, I knew that Dombrowski worked for some time uh, in the US and in Canada, but I didn't fully understand how and where. I knew, however, of Michael Pichowski because I saw Michael's name in some of the articles I, I read in Poland. Okay, so I moved with my then husband um, here to the United States. We had our first child. The child was unusual um, in many respects. And one of his teachers recommend, recommended that we have him assessed for giftedness. And so again, that happened through the series of improbable events. It almost, um, it's almost as though there was a hand of grace. So uh, we got our son um, assessed by Betty Maxtroff. This was the recommendation made to me by John Smutney, who was the director of the Center for the Gifted at National Lewis University here in Chicago. After that assessment, Betty and I started to talk. She wanted to know what I was doing. At that time, I worked as, a, as an editorial assistant for a Polish-American magazine here in the Chicago suburbs. And um, I told her, you know, that I'm uh, a psychologist by training. And I told her that I was brought to psychology by, by this obscure theory that nobody really knew anything about this theory of positive disintegration. And Betty's eyes grew wide. And she said, well, this is the hottest thing in the gifted field right now. And of course, you know, uh, my jaw <laughs> fell to the floor and Betty told me that she she was friends with Michael Pichowski and um, that there was a Dombrowski's um, study group at that, at that time and she mentioned Linda Silberman and 
other people associated with the theory, Frank Falk. And she said she, she's part of that inner circle. I was shocked. Um, and Betty offered me, uh, suggested that I work with her. And in time, Betty retired and um, I took over the task of um, gifted assessment and consultation and therapy and counseling for the population here. But I went to the first, um, I think it was a symposium at that time in Madison, Wisconsin, um, Dombrowski Symposium in 1997, if I'm not mistaken, and I met Michael Pihowski there. And, you know, it was an earth-shaking experience, of course. Um, here was this man who worked with Dombrowski and was his friend and collaborator, and I read his articles when I was still a teenager in Poland. Um, it was otherworldly, almost. That was my, that's how I became acquainted with, with this theory. And it has been shaping, it has shaped my views um, on our life ever since, along with my work. What a small world. It's right? incredible to me that you would run into, that you would go to Betty Mextrop right. and have that experience. It's really amazing. Right. I, <laughs> yes, it is, uh, it is definitely a hand of grace, I have to say, because what are the odds? Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm thinking about this afternoon, I participated in the Dabrowski study group that exists now, which started several years ago. And, you know, it's mostly those of us in Colorado, but you've attended now, after, you know, because of COVID, we started meeting mm -hmm. online. And so, yeah. you know, as you know, we meet once a month. And this month, we talked about Michael's Rethinking One paper about mm -hmm. level one. And you are one of the few people who has written, who's studied and written about and published um, about well, the lower levels of development. And I'm thinking of your chapter, Who Goes Trump, in the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald J. Trump. And mm -hmm. I know that you have, you know, an enormous following on Twitter of people who um, have really been interested in your thinking around this. And so, I mean, where to even start? Let's talk about what level one is and what it looks like for people who are listening who might not be as um, au fait with the theory that we get an understanding of well, what are we talking about when we're talking about level one. Right. So level one, there are five levels of development in Dombrowski's theory and levels are not developmental stages and um, they don't have much to do with uh, chronological age. Um, and level one is the level of primary or primitive integration. I think we went away from the word primitive because it had such unpleasant connotations. We officially use the primary integration. So this is the level which is not amenable to, to growth through positive disintegration. And um, the debate that has raged for some time um, in Dombrowski circles as to whether uh, people on level one are this way because of, the, are they born this way or is, is this that um, the level one society limits their development? And um, at some point there was some confusion about um, people in the primary integration being psychopaths 
that was the impetus for uh, writing this little paper on primary integration average person. So Dombrowski's views on level one are more nuanced. It's not just this monolithic group. Um, yes, there are psychopaths in, in level one in primary integration, but they constitute a minority. So there are sub-levels within level one, and um, I put the table in that little paper. So the bottom, the very bottom of the developmental hierarchy, and that's that's level one. So that's the the very bottom sub-level of level one are psychopaths, and they are a minority. And they're psychopathic um, like individuals. So they don't qualify for the level for the clinical diagnosis of psychopathy, but they are very close in their development to clinical psychopaths in that they possess very little or no empathy. Their conscience is very underdeveloped. They tend to not experience inner doubts or inner conflicts, and they certainly are not um, susceptible to growth through positive disintegration. And so, so the bottom level are psychopaths and psychopath-like individuals, and there's the solid average individual. And you know, those distinctions are subtle, really. So um, the distinctions can be conceptualized on the continuing, on the continuum uh, of conscience. Um, if we were to put people on the on the axis of conscience from no conscience to highly developed conscience, we could map, up, map out um, level one, the primary integration uh, close to that no conscience. Um, and then um, uh, we have uh, above the average person, we have people who are on the borderline of average and average person psychoneurotics. So they do experience some inner conflicts. They have more sensitive conscience. They experience inner conflict, self-doubt. Um, they are susceptible to um, what Dombrowski would call psychoneurosis. So there, there are nuances within level one. And so it, it's unfair to say that level one are psychopaths. And I don't think we, we do this anymore. But in times of conflict, you know, and we see the we see, we see this happening in war, for example, the so-called average person becomes very much like a psychopath. Um, and Dombrowski wrote quite a lot about that. So when the social constraints are removed and um, permission is given to, to do the un unthinkable, then um, we learn all too quickly that so-called average people may not be that much different from clinical psychopaths. And that's quite scary. That is quite scary. So from what I'm hearing you you say, this is quite a large group. And I suppose developmentally speaking, um, from Dabrowski's view, it's people who haven't started to go through the disintegration process. So the, the inner conflict and the questioning of the way things are. Um, and it seems like it's a group that could also encompass 
a lot of average well-meaning people who are currently just going about their day-to-day lives and following the rules of society and you know their or their religion or you know the law because they've been told that that's the the right thing to do so it's not just people who are you know, narcissistic or you know unempathetic but there's a lot of average people in there who are just going about their daily thing but not having you know conflict or questioning things right right they um they function from what Dabrowski called um, negative adjustment. So adjustment to the world as is. Like you said, Emma, they do not question the, the customs and the orders they are given. Which in a, in a way is exactly what we tell people good behaviour looks like. Right. Do as you're told. Stick by the rules. Right. Which, is, um, which, which can be a toxic message depending on the context. So Dabrowski, um, you know, I read, um, and I don't recall this reading in, reading this in Dombrowski's papers. I think it was in, I think it was a quote um, attributed to Dombrowski that about 65% of the human population functions on level one, which, um, yeah. That's, that's a lot dep- of people. That's a lot of people, yes. So depending on, uh, our point of view, it may or may not be surprising. So do we want to talk now about some of the the traits? You know, what does this actually look like in practice? So, for example, you know, what is narcissism? What does it look like? <sighs> when I wrote that paper on, on um, tyranny as a triumph of narcissism, the comments that I received on it, some of them surprised me because, oh, uh, first of all, I don't use the name of, um, I don't use Trump's name, uh, Trump's uh, name in the paper uh, at all. The who goes Trump was um, in, uh, inserted by the editor. That did not come from me. I wanted to make um, a general observation in that paper. You know, it doesn't, the processes I described, they do not apply just to followers of Trump, although uh, they do apply to followers of Trump, but also to followers of any dictators or charismatic um, political figure. The message I wanted to be taken from this paper is that in order to change the world, we need to dismantle our narcissism. And I meant our, not they. So the the narcissism that's in each and every one of us. We don't have to be necessarily classified as um, clinical narcissists to recognize narcissistic traits in ourselves. And I think as long as we cultivate them in ourselves and don't reckon with their existence, we are not in a position to change the world for the better. I find what was interesting in that paper is you talk about whole societies as having narcissistic traits. Um, And there's one quote in here that you say that those societies um, show growing and ruthless competition, jealousy and aggression within the borders, 
but also directed externally towards other nations in the scapegoating mechanism that is meant to prevent an internal breakdown of a society by redirecting its narcissistic rage onto external objects. So if you think about, you know, ruthlessness and, and competition and, you know, jealousy and aggression, I mean, that's pretty much the economic climate, right? Right, absolutely. And, you know, and this works on the macro scale, but on the micro scale as well. So it, it works the same way in relationships. You know, if we don't, um, in, for example, in my work with couples, I often see this tendency to, to blame one another. That's, that's actually such a common thing in couples, um, blaming one another for things that we tend to be guilty of. Uh, oftentimes so we are not able to come to terms to see our own behavior uh, more objectively and in more humble ways but we unload this narcissistic um, tendency on on our spouse or partner we do this in with countries we do this within organizations so it's it's a human condition essentially and until we reckon with with it with its working within each and every one of us we're not going to make much progress i'm afraid and i was just going to say even things like um being competitive you know you mm-hmm. talk about ruthless competition but competitiveness i guess could be the seeds of that but that's something we prize today mm-hmm. you know be competitive achieve high come first win Right, by all by all means, right. Yes, so this is the ethos, if you can use that word, of um, primary integration. And in, it, in, its, in its extreme um, uh, version, it's a psychopathic ethos, win at all cost and destroy your competition. Our conversation has the potential to turn really dark, really fast, if it has not yet gotten there. But um, what gives me hope is the number of people who are not participating in this ethos anymore. They are not buying it. They are tuning out in a way from the world organized around those primitive um, primary um, integration principles. I keep thinking, you know, during the Trump years, my husband would talk about how, like, shocking it was for him that Trump supporters saw him um, as they did, as, like, Mm -hmm. this heroic figure, you know, and for those of us who don't, it's, it was kind of, and I mean, of course, it still feels that way, it's not like he doesn't still have followers, but, um, but it's a shocking difference, you know, now that we've had him as a president, it like gave so many of us the opportunity to see things like projection, for instance, from somebody, you know, I mean, when you see like the president projecting, you know, even like after he lost the election, you'd see him tweeting, like claiming things and you're like, well, wait a minute, you're the one doing that. Like, Mm -hmm. it just was so classic. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that and his utter lack of like his complete inability to admit that he's wrong, to apologize, to have any empathy, just it was really astonishing as an American to have a president who was doing these things. It's just 
you know, and, and now like my son is turning 16 this week and it's not lost on me that, you know, his experience of having a president has been so different, even though obviously, you know, I was growing up, well, I mean, no president is perfect, but Donald Trump took it to a different level, like literally when it comes to the theory, but <laughs> it's just, it, it's hard to wrap your head around. And these things like these um, like psychological mechanisms or defenses that we saw, um, it, it was shocking. Mm -hmm. Right. Shocking and instructive at the same time. Um, I believe he was elected um, not despite of his character defect, but because of it. So he was elected as an agent of destruction of the society in which um, life has become unbearable for so, so many people. So he represents all kinds of things to all kinds of people, but um, at the very least, he represents hope for destruction of this, of this order of things that seems so unjust and so unfair to so many. People don't, don't think about the fact that, you know, he is not on their side, of course. And if he is out to destroy um, what we see as our society, you know, they will be victims of that destruction as well. He does not have any respect for his followers, of course. Well, the other thing that came to mind that I wanted to bring up is kind of based on the discussion that we had today in the study group about, about level one. And, you know, one of the things that Michael brought up in that paper that he takes issue with is even the idea, you know, of course, as you said, like we've moved away from calling it primitive integration, but Michael would argue that it's, it also shouldn't be called primary integration because, mm -hmm. you know, Dabrowski was developing his theory prior to the research and understanding that we have, you know, about attachment or um, mm -hmm. child development and how babies are, like that babies are really social beings and you know, Michael doesn't believe that it's right to call them integrated. But I mean, and so to my mind, you know, what do you think about calling it unilevel integration as a way of kind of circumventing that problem of a label being kind of pejorative? I have no problem with that. I think it's a good idea. You know, the more we get away from um, unpleasant labels, the better, because there is no point in stigmatizing people. Right. It does. It just it doesn't help. And, and I think I mean, personally, I think it makes sense to not consider it primary integration, too, because, again, if it's not a if it's not a stage theory and we're not all born into the same level, because I really don't think we are just from my understanding and my observations. I mean, even in even in young children, you can see I mean, some children really are more developmentally advanced and Dabrowski in terms than others. Even Dabrowski himself gave many examples of children with um, like incipient dynamisms, for instance. And so, but that's not true for all children. I mean, some children are more uh, kind of rigid or uh -huh. don't have the same capacity for empathy during childhood. So it's interesting to me. I mean, it, we really shouldn't look at this theory as a progression of levels that you automatically go through. That's not what he intended. Right. Right. And, you know, from my reading of Dombrowski, um, 
I had an understanding that he was always looking for seeds of development in every person. And uh, he would be, well, I, I cannot speak for him, obviously, but um, I imagine he would be um, the first to, to say that it's our job to, to do that with, with individual people we encounter in our lives, you know, to look for glimpses of developmental potential, even when it may not be apparent that it's, it's there. I was going to say, this actually makes a lot of sense, and particularly what you said, Chris, about, you know, kids don't start off that way because Elizabeth's got a, a bit in her paper that says, when talking about people who follow tyrants, saying people see him as their long-awaited saviour and father substitute, hinting at the narcissistic abuse implicated in the authoritarian upbringing that demands obedience and worship of the all-powerful parental figure, which kind of, like, says that that sort of socialization like towards you know the negative is takes time like you might not start off being socialized that way but everything that you're taught takes time for you to learn so how can children possibly be seen as being primitive or, or primary when they start out like that sort of horror you know that sort of behavior takes time to sort of be embedded Right, indeed. And so, um, you know, that brings another um, question, um, and, and it's that of the relationship of this unilevel integration to trauma, right? Uh, how much of what we see as unilevel integration is a result of trauma, developmental trauma? That's the question. I was actually going to ask you about that, because that came up today during our study group discussion, too. I mean, even in the case of Donald Trump, I mean, we know Mary Trump's book was a, a revelatory look into the Trump family. And, you know, you can see that, I mean, you can see where he came from. Right. That, you know, I mean, we can see the damage that was done. You know, I'll have people come and talk about like their narcissistic parents. And I say, you know, you have to have kind of empathy and compassion for this phenomenon because it comes from from pain i mean it, there's these people were deeply hurt and that's why this happened right right that that level of narcissism that we see in trump you know and and people who are who show similar um kind of character organization that hints very strongly at at um, developmental trauma, trauma, you know, in, in his case, we know that uh, he was raised by a very unempathetic father who groomed him essentially to take over his business and called him a killer. His, his own father called him a killer and a king and treated him accordingly too. Sometimes a child doesn't have much of a chance that's right. I'm thinking of the your, the diagram that you use where the like lightning bolt of trauma, like where you say like the the wounded, you know, it goes into the real self like deeply. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that while we have you. Right. Yes. I I like to share it with my clients because I think it's a good um, visual aid of what we are all about. Um, 
And, um, you know, in terms of the process of disintegration, what this integrates is that outermost structure, our ego, our false self. And by the way, in narcissists, um, the more narcissistic somebody is, the more ego equals false self for them. But those two, ego and false self, are not necessarily syn synonymous. Um, however, in narcissists, they tend to be. Uh, because ego has positive functions too, you know, it allows us to uh, function in the world for, for example, you know, pay the bills and uh, mow the lawn and um, talk with, um, I don't know, construction people. You can see what's on my mind these days. Uh, so trauma has this paradoxical effect on us. It can freeze us and it can uh, strengthen the the walls of our false self slash ego, or it can break them open. And oftentimes the our early childhood traumas have the, um, have the freezing impact on, on many of us, not on all, but in people with deep-seated developmental difficulties, we, we can often trace or speculate at least on that, on that freezing role of trauma trauma as this strengthener of their false self so they as children they learn to build false self as a as a weapon in a way as a defense against um, the world that was too cruel but then as we move on in life you know those frozen layers of our being need to be melted or sometimes broken and shattered and subsequent traumas or losses or life difficulties have that effect. Well, they spur this process of positive disintegration in us. They have the potential to do that. What was on my mind for some time, and that was before the 2012 conference, is how does positive disintegration come about in us? And Dombrowski is very clear about the role of First of all, frustrations and life difficulties um, that provide this impetus to development in us. Um, he also, but but what exactly is that? I, I wanted to know if there is this one event that can do this for us. And I have a tendency to ask questions that are going to be answered in my life in unexpected ways sometimes, soon after I ask them. So I was asking that question in 2012, and that was my um, presentation at that time on, on the role of sudden dynamic insight. Dombrowski um, talks about sudden dynamic insight as this impetus to multi-level development, development through positive disintegration. And I, I wanted to look cl more closely at what that was. So that, that's what that presentation was about. But he also, he was kind of cheeky with all of us because he said that at the bottom of our development, there lies a mystery. Uh, we cannot pinpoint uh, with high degree of specificity those factors and events that create the spark that, um, that begins the process of positive disintegration in us. Chris and I were just talking before 
you've got a quote in the conclusion of your paper that says a narcissism is what gives rise to inequality and inequality fuels our narcissism. Um, And it made me think that, well, inequality can also fuel positive maladjustment. So what's the the difference between that? And I think you've just kind of alluded to that when we say trauma can have one or two effects. It can either grow the ego and make it more solid or it can shatter it. And maybe the difference between them is with positive maladjustment, we, we look inward to sort of change ourselves. And in the, the case of narcissism, we just do, like, as you said, with people in relationships, look for someone else to blame. Right, right. A narcissistic response would be, um, and also, you know, for the people who, who do well, their narcissistic response is to um, assume they do well because they deserve to do well and others don't do so well or well. That's because they they are not smart enough or whatever the reasons are used there. So um, um, in others observing this inequality, so the, the people who are on the bottom usually are the ones who have a more realistic appraisal of life and the world as it is. People on the top tend to be quite withdrawn from the realities of life. They are well protected from them for better and for worse. Actually, it's mostly for the worse, although they think it's for the better. So the positive maladjustment, um, positive maladjustment may arise actually in pretty much anyone, but it tends to um, arise in people who are confronted with injustice with inequality, with um, suffering that they observe in the world and they don't want to agree to the status quo. They think a better world is possible and they are willing to uh, fight for it. But there's a danger in that too. Sometimes I think that when we engage in that fight, we may become prey to our own narcissism. And what I mean by that is, you know, we again tend to go into those divisions, us versus them. And we tend to, we may have a tendency to see things in black and white. And in the process of trying to make the world a better place, we may actually create a lot of hurt and suffering and problems. So that's often the case with different revolutionary movements, for example. It's when one narcissism is exchanged for another's or is extinguished by another. You know, the dynamisms in the theory are, you know, so many of them are around self-evaluation. And it's, mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the ways that we can check ourselves in our own personal narcissism is to make the effort to be self-reflective and to, you know, pay attention to how we treat other people and, Um, You know, another thing that you mentioned in your article is that, you know, there's like kind of like capital N narcissism and well, you didn't put it that way. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's like big narcissism, the more pathological malignant kind and that there's more, I don't know, common narcissism, I guess, or small N narcissism. Right. The kind each of us has. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Dombrowski's theory is revolutionary in so many ways. It's just phenomenal, I think. And 
So the fact that Dombrowski talks about guilt and shame as developmental dynamisms and factors that inner, inner, so inner forces that indicate positive uh, development, right? That in itself is revolutionary. We tend to not do very well with guilt and shame, both in our world and uh, in um, psychology. Um, but both um, feelings are essential for our growth. Of course, you know, there's, there are degrees of that, right? So there's toxic shame and there may be pathological guilt too. And there is way too much of it. But um, both are absolutely essential to our development. In fact, the absence of capacity for guilt and shame uh, is what, um, what's uh, indicative of psychopathy. So that self-examination, Chris, that you mentioned, that's exactly we need to we need to look within before we start um, changing the world, I think. And I think the greatest gift we can give to the world is our transformed self. We don't just talk about what the world should be like, but we are showing it through our existence. You know, a lot of people who are interested in the theory come to it and they they wonder like, well, and they're idealistic and they wonder, you know, how, well, how can I change the world? What can I do to make the world a better place? And my answer is always, well, you have to start with yourself. I mean, you can transform yourself and that is, that's how you transform the world. Right. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So Emma, you mentioned this dynamism of positive maladjustment. This is how it starts, right? For, for those young and not so young idealists who want to change the world because they see so much wrong with it. So that could be the beginning of their positive disintegration. And you know we can assess um, people's developmental level by the presence of um, developmental dynamisms um, in their inner milieu. So um, positive maladjustment would place them on the level of spontaneous positive disintegration. So it's a good thing. We want to encourage that, but we also want to encourage that self-reflection and um, the processes of self-transformation. We cannot do much in the world if, you know, we are a big mess. I mean, we can, but, you know... (laughs) That seems to me right there, the business case for why you would look at Dabrowski's theory in the first place and why you'd start taking that journey of self-reflection because I think if people start down that path, as you say, fighting the good fight, but they don't take that time to self-reflect, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you don't take that time out to reflect and look inward, you may end up becoming the very thing that you're trying to fight because I think, you know, a lot of people don't start off wanting to hurt people. But if we don't do that that inner work, then that could be a byproduct of that. Right, right. There's a huge risk of projection in those fights, um, you know, we, we tend to accuse other people um, of what we are guilty of ourselves. And this is the, the narcissistic mechanism behind uh, conflicts on small and large scale. 
And until we looked more objectively, more objectively at ourselves, straighten ourselves out, so to speak, we we run that risk of projecting our own problems onto the world and other people. You know, we're witnessing right now, unfortunately, the destruction and devastation of another pathocracy, which is, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war that's going on right now. Um, You know, I mean, of course, in the future, people will listen to this episode and it won't be so closely tied to what's happening, but this is what we're facing right now. And the fact that you're from Poland, I know Mm -hmm. that it's been very difficult just from my observations with Michael. You know, when when Russia invaded Ukraine, he kept saying to me over and over, oh, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like 1939 all over again for him. Right. And I just could tell like how triggered he was and, I know that you didn't come up with the term pathocracy, but that it just so aptly describes that situation. Right. So the term was uh, popularized by um, another Polish psychologist, Andrzej Łobaczewski, who, um, according to what I've read, knew Dombrowski as well and, and worked with Dombrowski, which is a curious tidbit, I think. And he wrote a book on um, ponderology or the science of evil, I think, for political purposes. He had a difficult time publishing that book and you know, the first two or three drafts of it were destroyed and it was cobbled up from what he um, salvaged from destruction. I, I think the story of that book is interesting in itself. He wanted to publish it in in the States, but it didn't quite work out. And I think it was published after his death. Uh, But right, pathocracy is the rule of people without a conscience, essentially. And we see this, we see this in America, we see this in Russia. Um, Well, in Russia, we have an extreme manifestation of it that erupted in a war, of course, invasion of another nation, it is quite scary because we, we are in this point um, in time that brings so many changes all at once. And there is that sense, and I don't know if you, if you agree with this, but there's a sense of things changing on a very deep level. I think we are, we are in the process of transformation And, um, you know, it's not quite certain that we're going to survive it. I do believe it's a process of positive disintegration. And I think the positive part is there. But um, I don't think it's certain that the positive forces are greater than the negative ones. It's not certain. It's it is. It does feel like a does feel like things are changing and it's it's interesting to me just to observe the shifts over the past several years and you know in some ways you see in some people or I mean a lot of people I actually you know at the beginning of COVID my friend Tina who you know was in an episode a few episodes back you know we talked a lot together about um like societal disintegration and and she kept asking me, like, you know, didn't Dabrowski write about that? And I mean, he did. But, you know, we talk so much about the theory in terms of the individual. And 
and it's true that it it absolutely applies, you know, um, to groups and societies as well. And so it's it's a really interesting thing to to talk about. Mm-hmm. And Dobrowski, right? And Dobrowski said that the more people um, who, well, he called them psychoneurotic, right? So the more people who are psychoneurotic and people on the borderline of the average um, range and psychoneurosis, the more advanced is the society and the better the society is. Um, So we need to look for those psychoneurotics in our midst and, you know, we need to huddle up. (laughs) We do need to huddle up. That's exactly right. Thinking about huddling up, enough drops of water all flow in the one direction. It's a tide. Right, right. (laughs) We can make a tide yet. You know, I have to tell you that um, recently I have been listening religiously, pun not intended, to um, accounts of near-death experiences. Uh, there are tons of them. There are, there are entire channels on YouTube um, and in different places of the internet devoted to just that, to interviewing people who had a near-death experience or several. This is what, what is happening. Nowadays, we have this disintegration of societal structures, of um, of institutions, of long cherished beliefs, and at the same time, we have this new knowledge, which is not new at all, but it's being disseminated by so-called ordinary people who have this direct experience of the of the divine of our divine nature, and they bring this experience back with them to share with the humanity. This is happening not by accident, I believe. There's a reason for that. We are to learn about who we are. And this knowledge seems to be so urgent. So the the sheer number of people who are coming back with those experiences, you know, that I don't, I don't know what the official data would, would um, tell us about this, but I personally, I am quite, um, quite stunned by the transformations that are happening left and right all around us. And we don't necessarily know, you know, people from all walks of life falling sick and, you know, um, um, experiencing clinical death and going to the other side and having this divine experience and coming back with it. And there are some similarities. There are general similarities to those experiences, although each of them is unique. But the transformations are along the same line. So people lose their fear of death, for one. Their um, character is transformed. So it's like positive disintegration in one swoop, so to, so to speak. Um, they have an instant personality transformation. Although it's, I'm, I'm simplifying this to a large degree. So for some, the, the change is um, instantaneous. And in some aspects, it's very, it sticks. So people are um, healed from um, their addictions, for example, from unhealthy habits, 
the relationships improve, although for some, for, for some, the relationships fall apart as a result of that experience. Their the systems of values are flipped up, upside down. So it's quite a fascinating process that we are undergoing as a humanity. And it is contagious. And so when you go to any YouTube channel, for example, that has those interviews and you read the comments, um, you see how to, to every exper experiencer uh, of near-death um, experience, um, there are tens or hundreds of others who are not being interviewed, but they chime in in the comments and talk about their own spiritually transformative experience. So this is happening and it's, it's quite um, tangible and absolutely fascinating to me. I think this is the direction in which we're going, you know, as this world is falling apart, we are getting in touch with our true nature. It really is so fascinating. And I wonder, you know, what kind of a, um, a challenge it presents to the idea of developmental potential as some kind of, you know, predetermined, like you have this amount of potential to develop and, you know, it dictates where you can go. I really wonder when it comes to like near-death experiences, what kind of a challenge they present because, right. you know, like you say that you see the transformation in some of these people. And I think that that would be such an interesting thing to study. Mm -hmm. I agree. Right. So there are people from, again, all walks of life. Um, some may not have had much evidence of high developmental potential necessarily. Uh, yet they come back transformed. I think, you know, this is our universal nature. Um, we all have that true self. That's the, the spark that connects all of us. That's the divine part in us. In some, it's larger from the start. In, in others, it's smaller, but it's, it's there in each and every one of us. So uh, very dramatic life experience, like clinical death and near-death experience, Obviously, you know, it's the shattering of the ego for most of the experiencers and this um, freeing of the true self or, or large parts of it, at least. Even if, you know, um, prior to that experience, they may not have shown much indications of, of having that high developmental potential, as we call it in the theory. But it's, it's funny you mentioned that picture again because you had a quote on that slide that, you know, the wound is where the light gets in. Right. So whether you're already high in developmental potential and you're porous, let's just say, you, you're already full of holes yourself or you just happen to have some earth-shattering experience, um, there's a potential for transformation, which is hopeful, I think, yeah. that anyone really does have some potential at least yes isn't it yes absolutely and you know when we take this larger view of of life and our existence um we realize how little we really understand those um experiences um those spiritual transformative experiences point the way to the reality that um we don't necessarily that well not necessarily we generally are not very much in touch with 
in our daily lives, to our detriment, I think. But Dombrowski speaks about it, see? And that's the part that um, was um, a surprise discovery for me. And again, you know, as I was preparing for the 2018 presentation, I came upon this Polish article. Uh, I don't remember the exact title, but it's from 1958. And in this article, he talks about the mystical instinct. Instinct, he calls it an instinct. So it's, it's you know, it's imbued in us, in our nature, as the highest manifestation of the instinct of self-development. Um, and I haven't seen that anywhere else. So most of his books are very scientifically oriented, right? So he had to, he had to do this, um, I, I think, because he was dealing with hostile world. Um, he published in, in the communist Poland, of course. So his theory, theory was not well received there. And it wasn't that well received here in the, in the West. Um, again, uni-level uni world obviously. So, um, and a whiff of mysticism would be so much worse <laughs> received. So maybe that's why he did not write so much about it. I'm just speculating. I don't know that for certain. But the fact that he mentions mysticism as the instinct, developmental, the highest manifestation of our developmental instinct was, was a revelation to me. I loved it, of course. I love that too, honestly. Yeah. And so that's, we are seeing people, you know, getting in touch, people who, again, who did not have any inclinations of other, um, there were no manifestations of developmental instinct in them prior to NDE or other spiritually transformative experience. And yet after this experience, there's this burst of true self, of creativity, of healing, of inner transformation. So it proves, uh, it proves to us who we are, I think. And that's very helpful. I, I was just gonna ask you, you know, is that what you refer to as the, the fourth factor? Right, so the, the fourth factor, you know, that's, that's my addition um, from the 2019 Congress um, and it's God essentially, or the divine or the source or um, however people want to conceptualize that, that all that we are a part of. And, and I think uh, there's a, the number of people who are getting in touch with this grows every day. So that's the fourth factor. I, I use the term God because I was raised Catholic and I still have those Catholic bones in me. Um, and it resonates with me and it's simple too, but I know that many people are um, turned off to the idea of God and they had traumatic ex experiences in church and uh, through, through religion. So I, I respect that. However, this is what works for me. And I have, I have felt and seen uh, its manifestations, its guidance in my own life and in those of people around me. So it's a very tangible force. Dombrowski speaks about it too. So he talks, you know, he hints 
at, at it. Um, he talks about this. I have to pull the specific quotes, but he talks about the being, um, that supernatural being. He talks about the fact that, you know, we are born with this desire for self-transcendence, with this drive to transcend that's um, like like the seeds, you know, in, in the ground that grow to be plants. We are those beings who come to this world with this desire for self-transcendence. And if self-transcendence is our destiny, there has to be a place, a being, a level that creates this in us, that we are transcending to, because it makes no sense from any point of view to transcend to nothing. Nothing, nothingness does not um, inspire the desire for transcendence. So he kind of looks at it from the bottom up, the fact that we come to the world with a need and desire for self-transcendence suggests that there is something to transcend to and that itself is an indication of a higher being or a source or however we want to call it. So God is as good a name as others. So on, on that note, I'll leave us with this quote, Elizabeth, that you have in one of your sides, and I believe it's one of Dabrowski's, and it's mm-hmm. self-education is about personality development on the ever higher levels. Its highest goals is in the natural dimension, the fullness of humanity, and in the supernatural dimension, becoming godlike. Self-education yes. should go hand in hand with introspection, and those two activities should become one effort, lasting a lifetime to come close to the ideal. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. This was really wonderful. I knew it um, would be. I've been wanting to have you on, you know, since we had the first episode. So <laughs> thank um, you. Such a pleasure. Yeah, it's been it's been a great pleasure. And you know, we could certainly chat some more if if a mood strikes. And thank you to Chris for, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here as always. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. And we hope you got as much out of this discussion as we did. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, don't forget to hit those stars and give us a rating. And if always, if you have any questions, feedback or topics you'd like us to discuss, please reach out to us. You can email us at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, keep walking that all-important path to your authentic self. Bye.